What a pleasure and a privilege it is for me to be here. Uh, Great Neck, when I was the Long Island director of NCSY back in 19... Which, according to my revised biography, was before I was born. So, uh, it's, uh, you know, I remember when, when Great Neck was a, you know, a small little Jewish community. Now it's a gigantic circle on the map of Jewish life. And it's so nice that you walk down, you see so many Bote Knesio, so many shuls, and so many, uh, uh, well, let's, let's face it, kosher restaurants, um, <laughs> which is really what's important. <laughs> and you know that we have a thriving community, so uh, the, um, the, there are certain out-of-town communities where they actually pay money, people collect money to pay someone to open a kosher pizza place, because everyone knows you're not a community if you don't have a kosher pizza place. So I don't know about the local status here, but I think we have to get going. Anyway, so this becomes the yardstick, you know. So someone says you always know you're in a Jewish neighborhood when you see a Chinese restaurant. But, uh, you know, certain things uh, are yardsticks. The the topic this evening that Yaniv gave me um, is who's the boss? And I asked him what he meant, and he said he doesn't know. <laughs> Which leaves me um, a certain amount of creativity. You understand? Um, I saw who's the boss. I assumed it was going to be a sheer on marriage. And, uh, <laughs> and then I realized, no, that wouldn't even be a question, would it? <laughs> uh, I just spoke to uh, a group, interestingly enough, of 120 Panamanians who came from Panama, obviously, and they come to Lakewood for a Yarche Kala for, for a week. They all fly, 120 of them, you know? And, uh, and they bring in everybody to speak, uh, including me, and, uh, and the topic they gave me was marriage. So I said, obviously, you told me to talk about marriage because you left all your wives home in Panama so I can say anything I want, right? You know? <laughs> they appreciated that. But... Um, you know, but that's, that evidently was not the topic. So I asked a friend of mine, I figured maybe, you know, there's something I'm not familiar with here, the phrase maybe, you know, uh, things are always picking on different meanings, you know. Um, you think you know what's, you know what something means and then, you know, the, the years go by. So I said, uh, I was asked to speak about who's the boss. So without hesitating, he said, Andrea. I said, what? He said, there was a TV show called Who's the Boss? And it was really Andrea. <laughs> I said, I don't think we're doing sitcoms. I could be wrong. As I checked the other topics, and it's uh, what's happening and, uh, and, um, and Full House. So it could be that that's really what he wanted me to talk about. But unfortunately, I'm just not that, I'm just not that versed. Uh, it was, I moved to Eritrea. I, my, my knowledge, you know... Uh, of, of current TV shows went down. So, uh, so I, I assume he's looking for something else. Yeah? And uh, he just left. So I really could talk about anything I want at this point. Yeah? Um, I want to, uh, I, I want to perhaps, perhaps when we talk about, when we say, who's the boss? I want to speak about Yitzchak. Right? The three avot, you know, in, in English, it sounds so great. The three forefathers. Yeah? So it sounds like it's a little, uh, you know, paradoxical. Yeah, three, four, five. Anyway, so uh, Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Um, it's interesting. I've been teaching for many years. And uh, invariably, I would have to say that the least popular of the Yavos is definitely Yitzchak. You know, Yitzchak does not get as much press as the others. This week's parasha, we start with Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu recognizes the Kosh Baruch on his own and he discovers it and he's willing to get thrown into a furnace and die for his beliefs. You know, he stands up against the entire flog by himself. He goes to, um, you know, Choran, uh, he opens up a yeshiva, the Rambam says, with thousands and tens of thousands of Talmidim. He fights with Avimelech, he fights with Paro, he fights against the four world powers. You know, he's, he's an unbelievably very powerful, proactive person. Yaakov, Yaakov fights with his brother, Yaakov fights with his, his uncle, Yaakov has to stand up, uh, 
you know, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, go down to Mitzrayim. He has to fight the wars against Shechem. There's all kinds of things that are going on with him. Yitzchak um, is born. That's the first exciting story we get when he's um, when he's two years old. His parents make him a party when he stops nursing. That has got to be embarrassing. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, it says all the greats of the generation were there. You know, I mean, how many sippy cups does a kid need? You know what I mean? Like, you know, they make him a party. And then his brother is shooting arrows at him, so his mommy has to stand up for him and send his brother away. Yeah? And um, uh, then uh, you don't get too many stories, you know? And then one day, his dad says, you know, Yitzchak covered me. I'm going to take you up a mountain and kill you. He's like, okay. You know, bring him up the mountain, tie him up, he's about to kill him. Malchus says, stop. He goes, I'm not going to kill you. Yitzchak's like, okay. You know, goes back home and the father realizes, you know, he's 37 already. That's, that's old in almost any community, you know. And so he sends the family slaves to go out and find a wife for him, you know. And he brings her home. He says, here's your wife. He's like, okay. You know, gets married. And um, his wife is pregnant, and she's having these terrible difficulties, and she doesn't say anything to him. She goes to Yeshua Sheva Eber, she gets a whole Nebuah, never tells him. Never tells him about the prophecy that she got. And uh, fine. So he's got one of his sons who are fooling him, you know, pretending that he's a tzaddik and he's really a Russia. And the other one is, uh, his wife knows what's going on. She had the Nebuah, you know. So. His children are playing off of him. His wife is playing off of him. You know, eventually she gets together with one of the other children and dresses him up like his brother and steals the brachas. You know, and that's basically the end of Yitzchak. That's that's all of our Yitzchak stories. Yeah, there's only one story where Yitzchak appears by himself, not playing off of his mother or his father or his brother or his wife or his children. There's only one story where he stars by himself and that is the story by Avi Melech. He goes down to Avi Melech and he's very successful and Avi Melech says, you're very successful, go away. And Yitzchak says, nothing, he goes away. And he digs a well and they take away his well. And he says, Nothing. He digs another well. And they take away his well, and he says, nothing. He digs a third well. And they don't bother him anymore. All's well that ends well. Right? And he gets to keep his well. Eventually he goes back, and Avimelech comes and says, I want to make a bridge with you. You know, when he came to Avram and said he wants to make a bridge with you, Avram said, hey, what about my well that you people stole? And, and Avimelech said, I don't know anything about it. And he turns to General Fichal. Fichal says, I don't know anything about it. Nobody knows anything about it. They make a bris. They took away two of his wells. And they filled in his father's wells. And he says to him, I want to make a bris with you. And Yitzhak says, okay. And they have a, have a suda, and he goes back. And that's the story. That is the only story where Yitzhak appears by himself. Now, this is particularly amazing when you think about it. Because, as we all know, um, there are certain characters in Jewish history who represent more than themselves. Right? Obviously, Adam represents all of mankind. Yeah? For that matter, so does Shais. For that matter, so does Enosh. That's why one of the names for humanity is Enosh. Yeah? And uh, we're called Bnei Shais. For that matter, so is Noah. We're called Bnei Noah. Yeah? Certain, certain characters obviously have a certain role. But as we all know, we're coming out of Sukkot. We just had the Ushbizen. We had seven guests. And those seven guests are known as the seven Ro'etzon, the seven shepherds of Israel. And those seven individuals represent more than themselves. Um, there's two different minhagim. But if you have the minhag where you go Abraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Moshe, Aaron, Yosef, and David, you'll notice that Yosef is out of chronological order. That's because those seven would represent the seven spirot, the seven emanations it's called, I don't know how you, how you refer to it, the seven levels, right? We all know, God created the world with ten expressions, 
If you count, there's only nine. The Gemara says, Bereshit is also an expression. But you have ten expressions that created the world. And that number ten pops up over and over again. Ten generations from Adam till Noah. Ten generations from Noah till Avram. Yeah, um, uh, ten plagues, ten miracles happened to the Jews in the Midbar. Ten times we tested God. Yeah, ten tests of Avram. Ten, uh, uh, ten, uh, ten commandments. You know, you find this number ten over and over again. And whenever you find the number ten, it's making reference to the to the spheres. And the spheres, right? The bottom seven, which we uh, we know from. We know it from Sukkot. We also know it from uh, from uh, Sreta Omer. Each week we focus on a different one. Chesed, Gvura, Teferes, Netzach, Hod, Yesod, and Malchus. Those seven correspond to lots of different things. They correspond to um, what's called the seven Kochve Lechet, the seven moving stars, which is the sun and the moon, which is Mercury, uh, Venus, uh, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Uh, uh, Saturn, right, which is number seven, in Hebrew is called Shabtai. Yeah? And uh, seven is always Malchut, it's kingship, and that's why Saturn has a ring around it, like a crown. Yeah? They represent the seven days of the week. Sunday, moon day, yeah, the seventh one is called Saturn Day, yeah, which is Shabbos, Shabtai, and has the crown around it, the Malchus, right? So these seven uh, levels correspond to everything. They correspond to parts of the body. Right hand is Chesed, left hand is, you know, Gvura goes through your body. Uh, it also corresponds to people. Avraham is Chesed, Yitzchak is Gvura, Yaakov is Tiferes. Moshe is Netzach, Aaron is Hod, Yosef is Yesod. That's the reason it's chronologically out of order because it's following the different levels of spheres. And David obviously is Malchus, right? David is the king. Yeah. So the, these seven things correspond to lots of different things. Yeah. Who's the second one? Yitzchak. What's Yitzchak? Gvura. Power. He didn't do anything. Uh, Avraham, he's chesed, but he's going out fighting wars. He's going here. He's making yeshivas. He's teaching Talmidim. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, Yaakov Kamenetsky says, the Rambam says that Avraham had a yeshiva and he had thousands and tens of thousands of students. The Gemara says that Yitzhak also had a yeshiva, but doesn't say how many students he had. So, Rabbi Yaakov says, I'll tell you how many students he had. One. Yaakov. He didn't have anybody else. He didn't have anybody else. So gosh, here your dad's got a shtella, 10,000 people, and you've got a shtella, one guy. You understand? It's one, it's one thing. It's, it's always embarrassing, you know, when you know, somebody's talking to a big full room, the next guy gets up to speak, some people leave, more people leave, you know, I spoke once at the Aguda Convention, and it's just speech after speech after speech. By the time this guy got up, there was one person in the audience. So what are you going to do? He's, he's practiced so long for this speech, he's going to give the speech, you know? He gives his whole drasha, and he's speaking and dramatic, you know? It's like 3 o'clock in the morning, you know? <laughs> he's giving his whole speech, you know? There's one guy sitting there, you know? And when he's all done, he comes to his dramatic finish, you know? Thank you very much, you know? Thank you, thank you, sir, thank you. <laughs> and he gets down from standing up on the stage, <laughs> he comes down, and he goes to this one guy who's still in the room, and he says, thank you so much for staying. It really meant a lot to me. And he said, I'm the next speaker. <laughs> <laughs> the only reason I'm still here, you know. You go from talking to a crowd of 10,000 people, you got one guy sitting there in the room, you know. So Yitzchak's left with the yeshiva, one guy, you know. And he's Gvura. He doesn't stand up for himself, not against his, his wife, not against his children, not against his brother, not against his mother, not against his father. Nobody. And when Avi Malchi finds a chance, so now he suddenly puts himself in a... not doing anything. 
So how does one understand this? This is supposed to, he's supposed to be Gvura, supposed to be power. So I think we have to have a different insight into power. Yeah? And maybe that's what we mean when we say, who's the boss? Um, when we say power, it says in Pirkeyevos, Ezehu Gibor HaKovesh Yitro. Who is strong? Someone who can control himself. Understand, you can control me. You understand? In a lot of ways. You can force me to do a lot of things. But if you can never get inside of me, if you can never touch me, that doesn't make a difference. Natan Sharansky, for those of you who are old enough to remember, when, uh, when uh, we were protesting against the Russians to try to get out the Jews in, in Russia, to get them out, you know, and, uh, the, uh, the consulate, the, Rus- the Russian consulate wasn't far from here, yeah? Port Washington? No, it was, uh, uh, gosh, it was right near here. I don't know where it was. I used to know because we used to go for uh, protests, you know. One, two, three, four, open up the iron door. Five, six, seven, eight, let our people emigrate, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was either that or go to class. So we were protesting for our brethren because we really cared anyway. But um, um, we were some protests outside of the Russian uh, consulate all the time, you know. And, uh, you know, that's how the only one of the few Russian words I know, Swoboda. Freedom, Swoboda, you know. So, uh, so we were protesting, you know, let the people go, you know. So Sharansky, when he got out, you know, Nantan Sharansky, he had been in Siberia by the Russians. And if you've ever heard him speak, you know, he has a very keen sense of humor. Now, Siberia is not a very funny place. It's not a lot of fun to be in. Yeah, and he was beaten and starved and tortured. And when they released him, he came out with a sense of humor. He was, he was just as he is now. And they asked him, how could you stay that way? How could you stay that way? How could you not be destroyed? And he says, because they could never get me. They could uh, control my body. They could never touch me. I was here. One of the prisoners of Zion back in the late 70s, uh, Yosef Mendelovich. And I remember when he was freed and uh, we had an event in the Youngest of Woodmere. He came to 1980, maybe it was. And uh, he came to speak and, um, and they, uh, he said, they took everything from me. And I was in this prison cell in, uh, in Siberia and I realized it was Friday night, I had nothing. And he says, I sat on the ground and I started to sing Lachadodi to myself. And they said, Be quiet. And he said, You've taken everything from me, but you'll never take my song. That you'll never be able to take. Yeah? There's a part of me that you can't touch. Who's really strong? I'll tell you, a terrible story it took place here in Long Island. Um, it was on the Southern State Parkway. I don't remember exactly where. I remember I read it at the time. It was a story in the 80s. Um, I was a kid by the name of Pergament, who evidently was heir to the fortune of the Pergaments. I don't know if the Pergament stores are still around. They're still around? No, no they're gone. They used to be the Pergaments. You know, they were like, you know, you bought everything in Pergament, you know. I guess it was like the uh, Home Depot of its time, you know. And uh, anyway, he's driving erratically, you know, and cutting in, he's zooming, it's good. It's going on for miles until finally a cop catches him and they chase him down and they pull him over to the side. <clears throat> he gets out of the car and he pulls a gun. And so the cops drop into position and they say, drop your gun. And he's walking towards them like this. And they scream at him again, drop your gun. And he's coming towards them. And finally, they shoot. And you know, when you shoot, you're taught to shoot for the, for the chest, you know. And they hit him, I don't know how many times. And when they get to him, he's dead. And they realize it was a toy gun. 
and there was a note in his car addressed to the officer who kills me tonight. And he writes that he was very depressed and he could not go on with life. And he wanted to kill himself, but he didn't have the courage. So instead, I decided that you would do it. This police officer was in therapy for years. He's the one who shot him. He had the power. But he didn't really have power. He wasn't really in any control. He was being manipulated. He was being controlled what to do. I don't know if you know anybody with a temper. Yeah? Um, I, it's one of, the, one of the many areas in my life that I struggled with for many years. You know, now Baruch Hashem, I, I know that I have my emotions completely under control. But when I see somebody loses their temper, it just gets me furious. <laughs> anyway, so, like somebody once said, I know there are people who do not love their fellow human beings, and I hate people like that. Anyway, so, uh, so the, uh, you know, people lose their temper. And if you're a person with an anger management problem, you know when you lose your temper afterwards, you don't feel better about yourself. You really don't. You much rather that you were cooler, you know, and you could just come up with some, you know, you know that uh, Winston Churchill had this ongoing feud with Lady Astor. There's a lot of famous stories that took place with them, you know. So one time Lady Astor says, Winston, if you were my husband, I'd put poison in your coffee. And Winston said, Madam, if you were my wife, I would drink it. You know? <laughs> and one time she says to him, Winston, you are drunk. You are disgustingly drunk. And he said, Madam, you are ugly. You are disgustingly ugly. But in the morning, I'll be sober. So they had a lot of these kind of exchanges, you know? And when you hear these kind of things, like you think to yourself, well, wouldn't that be clever? So Dave Barry, the humorist that uh, used to write for the Miami Herald, you know, so he says, you know, we, we, uh, um, we hear these, uh, these clever things and we think to ourselves, why do we fall back on losing our temper, getting it? Why can't we just say something clever, you know? And he says, we're not that smart. He says, so, I said, so carry a reference book with you, you know what I mean? And next time someone gets you, open it up and, you know, read one of these clever lines, you know what I mean? He said, but then you end up losing your place and just getting angry and screaming at them anyway. You know, so it doesn't really help. But imagine that I had that kind of control. Yeah? It's a very hard thing to do. A friend of mine told me he went into a store, and uh, I don't know how many people know this, but uh, there are a certain percentage of Israelis who have a short fuse. And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but... And they have a way of expressing themselves often in not the most polite terms, you know what I mean? So, um, uh, so the uh, uh, guy is, he said, I'm next in line. And this guy had to get something from the shopkeeper. He was unhappy about something like this. And he's screaming at him, and he's cursing at him, and he's screaming at him. And the guy just won't get upset, you know? And, uh, and finally, the guy storms off. So my friend says, I said to the guy, I said, how could you sit there and take all of that and not get upset? And he looked at him and he said, I have a very serious heart condition. If I get upset, I could die. It's not worth it to me. It's not worth it to me. Meaning, given a choice of that level of control. Now, okay. We all know that uh, there are people who think they have that level of control and it's not really true my father had a heart attack and a triple bypass two of my brothers had heart attacks and triple bypass all of them smoked yeah and my father when he realized how you know that it was really bad for him he kept trying to quit smoking and one time he said to me it's not hard to quit smoking I've done it dozens of times you know it's not hard yeah so um <coughs> After their heart attack and their bypass, all three of them stopped smoking. So what happened? They were in the hospital and they had some extra time, so they read the Surgeon General's report. Hey, you know what? Talk, it really is not healthy for you. I didn't know. You know, I, I know people used to say it, but you know, it's like, 
<laughs> I just saw her in the duty free. You know, I was on the plane. You know, I came in. I came in uh, this afternoon. So uh, you know, on the plane of the duty free, there's cigarettes, half the packages. Smoking kills. You will die. Some of them put on, you know, pictures of diseased lungs. You know, it's not very subtle. And you see people go, yeah, I could quit anytime. <laughs> now, okay. So my father, to my brothers, they stopped right after their, their heart attack and their bypass. But, you know, Rabbi Tatch tells the story about there's a particular medical condition where if you smoke, it cuts off the circulation to your limbs. He says, I was in the hospital when the guy came in and they removed his second arm. And I was still an intern when they came in to remove his leg. Thank you very much. I once spoke at an Amen conference. Me and Pesach Kron. So I sat there the whole time waiting. You know, they give you a little glass of water. Punch. And I got up and I made my brach and everyone answered, Amen. And I said, that's it, my job is done. <laughs> anyway. He, the guy couldn't stop smoking even though they were cutting off his limbs. And all he had to do was stop smoking and it would have been okay. Now, okay, I'm a big shot. I'm a big shot because, you know, I don't smoke. You know, it was one of the few tithers that did not appeal to me. You know, I tried, I just, I couldn't figure it out. It just didn't go for me, you know. I, I, I tried, I was choking, it was horrible. It was like, you know, they say, they say you have to develop a taste. <laughs> Jackie Mason said, said this about brie. <laughs> it's, it's disgusting. He says, it's disgusting. It's leaky. It's smelly. It's disgusting. You have to develop a taste. He says, why? Did you ever hear that about potato chips? <laughs> you got a potato? No, but he says, you have to develop a taste. It tastes good. <laughs> why do I have to develop a taste? He goes, your sister-in-law, you have to develop a taste. She's family. You know what I mean? But uh, I have to develop a taste. I've got to be nauseous for six months. You know what I mean? Do I develop a taste? You know? So... Uh, uh, you know, it's okay, so it, it didn't go for me, you know. But, uh, you know, when I was diagnosed with uh, type 2 diabetes, you know, there's uh, two different types. There's the type that you're born with, and then there's the one that you have to work really hard to get. And I really invested time in this, you know. <laughs> didn't happen overnight. It took me years. I was pre-diabetic for a long time, and I was like, you know, I was like, Mama, I really worked at it. Yeah, so... Uh, so I know that there's a lot of things that you're not supposed to eat. Basically, anything that tastes good or makes you happy. You know what I mean? You know, but uh, you can have a, you can, you know. There was this comedian, John Panette, very, very heavy fellow. You know? He says, I went to, uh, went to a dietitian. You know, they told me, eat salad. I said, salad's not food. Salad is something that comes with food. When you order a steak, they give you a salad for free. They don't even charge you for it. It's not food. They just give it to you, you know? He says, uh, what about vegetable soup? And he says, that's just hot salad. <laughs> but, uh, but if you want to eat healthy, I just, I just, Erev Shabbat, I was, I was supposed to give a shear, I was preparing something, and I came across where it says, if you take a look, before the flood, people lived almost a thousand years, and then slowly lifespans got shorter and shorter. He says, why? He says, because Noah, when he came off of the Teva, was allowed to eat meat. And once you start eating meat, your lifespan starts going down. That's <laughs> what so they said. Interesting. Anyway, but, um, uh, so I have type 2 diabetes, you know, and, uh, and I know what I'm not supposed to eat, and when I'm good, my nutritionist always says, you're not supposed to say good or bad, you know, yeah. but I, I know, you know, when you're good, so you don't eat any of those things, you know, and sometimes people say to me, oh, you really have to try this piece of cake, and I say, is it worth dying for? Well, I don't know if it's worth dying for, I mean, I, I, it's pretty good, you know, and sometimes they say to me, yes, this is worth dying for. <laughs> I said, then I'll have to taste the piece, you know? <laughs> and only once were they right did I actually find something that I was willing to die for. <laughs> but that's what I'm being good. When I'm not being good, I don't even ask the question. You know, you know that. The piece of cake starts to call to you. I will make you happy. Happier than you've ever been. Just look at me. I'm what you've been waiting for, you know? Now... Okay, I've been in Israel 
28 years, you know, there's a rule of thumb, the better it looks, the worse it tastes, you know what I mean? You walk into a bakery, you want to get the really good stuff, get the real plain kind of cookies, you know, the fancier it is, it's, it's, it's soggy and dry at the same time and tastes like rum. I don't know how they do this. They call it a tort. It's really, it's, a, it's, a, it's an art form to be able to do, you know. But, uh, you know, and, and all the, the cream always just tastes like margarine with a little sugar, you know. Just, they, they haven't quite figured out what to do with that to make it the custard, you know. But, uh, you know, but you look at it and you eat it and then afterwards you say, gosh, what was I doing? What was I thinking? You know? You know you have diabetes. You know you're not supposed to eat this, you know. Uh, they tell a story. I don't know if it's true, but this rabbi was at a wedding with his wife. And they bring by the first course, which is, uh, you know, some form of barakasin, you know. So it's either baraka, it's a blend, so it's, it's something filled with potato, you know what I mean? They bring it to him and he says, oh, no, no, that's filled with carbs. He can't have that. It's not for him, you know. So they come by with the main course. You know, do you want the steak? He goes, no, 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 he doesn't need that. Give him the fish. Give him the fish. So fine. No, it's too high in cholesterol. Come out with the dessert. He says, oh, it's all filled with sugar. Don't give it to him. And the rub gives a clop and he says, that's it. From now on, separate seating at weddings. Because <laughs> you're wondering where that came from. <laughs> but you know, <coughs> intellectually, I know I shouldn't eat this. I know this isn't good for me. But we don't look at that. We don't look at, you know, it intellectually. We don't have that much self-control. Now, we make decisions not based on strength. Ezehu Gibur, HaKovesh is Yisrael. You know who's really strong? Not if I can control you. So you worked me into a frenzy and I lost my temper. I screamed at you. Maybe I hit you. And then afterwards I said, I can't help it. He made me angry. What do you mean he made you angry? You don't have control over yourself? And Masil Susharim says, not like Pikiyavos, which is interesting. Pikiyavos says a person who is slow to get angry and quick to calm down, that's, that's already, uh, that's a tzaddik, that's a great thing, yeah? That's a, the Masil Susharim says that's okay. That's okay. That's not the real level. The real level is to be like Hillel. The Gemara and Shabbos tells us about Hillel. What happened? These two, uh, two Parsayim, says two Persians, had a bet. I'm going to get Hillel angry. One of them says, no, you don't understand. This is, he's not a regular guy. He doesn't get angry. The other one says, I'll bet you a large amount of money. I'll get him angry. So they wait till Erev Shabbos because there's a special Yetzirah to get angry on Erev Shabbos. Yeah. And uh, they wait till he goes into the bath, and they start starts knocking on the door. Where's Hillel? Where's Hillel? Where's Hillel? And Hillel says, uh, coming. Now Hillel was the nasi. You, you don't just come down in a bathroom, you know, in thongs, you know, in, uh, in the Crocs back then, you know. Back then they made it out of real Crocs, you know what I mean? Like, you know, Nile crocodiles. But, uh, you know, you have to put on your rope, put on your turban, lace up your... Uh, your, your sandals, you know, and he comes down and says, yes, my son, how can I help you? Uh, how come the people uh, in this place uh, have uh, flat feet? So, oh, it's a very good question. It's because of the mud. It's this. It causes it to, the feet to spread out. You know? Fine. He waits for him to get back in the bath. He's figuring it out, how long it's going to take him, and he starts pounding on the door. Where's hello? Where's hello? Coming. Gets out of the bath. Puts back on his rope, puts on his turban, puts on his shoes, it comes down, you know. Yes, my son. How can the people in this place have round heads? Oh, what a good question. He gives him an answer, fine. Waits for him to get back into the bed, starts pounding again. Where's all, where's all, where's all? Coming, he gets dressed again, comes down, you know. He says, how come the people in this place have slanty eyes? He says, oh, it's a good question. Because there's sand in the air and they're always squinting, isn't that? Fine. So the guy says, I have many more questions. So Hillel pulls over a chair and says, go ahead. And he says, now this guy starts to get angry. <laughs> he says, are you the one that they call Hillel? You know, the Jew, Hillel? He says, yes. He says, well, I hope there aren't too many more like you. Because of you, I'm losing a lot of money. And Hillel said, you could lose ten times that amount of money. Hillel doesn't get angry. You can't 
get me angry. You can't get me upset. I have such control over myself. We don't even know what that means. <clears throat> Elia Lopian was waiting for a bus in Yerushalayim to go to Shari Tzedek to get an operation. He had an appointment for an operation. <clears throat> and he's waiting for the bus. Um, if you've ever been in Israel waiting for a bus, so you know, everyone's going like this. No, like a what time did you come? When did you come? Did the bus come? Did you see the bus come? I don't know what's going on. Where's the bus? This is the main topic of the conversation. The value of Yana is sitting there and he's learning, you know, and he's waiting. And it's getting later and later. And he realizes he, he's going to miss his appointment for the operation. And he glances up the road. And he shakes himself and he says, Oy, ay, ay. The Altav Kelm would have been so disappointed in me. Such little self-control. I have to look up and, and, and see where it's going to go. That's an amazing thing. The, the, some of this you learn just with time. Because the, the, the more experiences you get, the more you realize how few things are really in your control. There's nothing you can do about it. You know? I... Uh, was here with my family um, in, in America, came to visit with, uh, at the time, maybe uh, seven kids. Maybe seven kids. And, um, and we were staying with a relative who decided to be helpful and put, take our tickets, which we had on the desk, and stick them in one of our suitcases. We didn't know. I assumed they were in my regular carry-on bag where I always keep them. We get to the airport, they're not there. So it's not like today with electronic tickets. You need a written ticket. <clears throat> and uh, we show up there, nine of us, and, uh, and uh, they said, uh, where are your tickets? And we look and we look, they're not there. So they all have to be written out by hand. And we're all waiting there, and there's a big line behind us, and people are going crazy. And we miss the flight. My wife says, what's going to be? I said, nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do. Yeah? Now, if that was the only time that happened to me, okay. There's another time we get to the airport. <laughs> I was, again, traveling with only seven of my kids. You know, it was a, it was a small trip. And uh, so there was nine of us and 16 pieces of luggage. And we're waiting online. And um, as luck would have it, I had the slowest woman who does the check-in. And she's checking us into this flight. It was, it was, I just did this now, you know, you, when you fly from Israel through Europe, so the flight leaves about 5, 5.10, 5.20, depending on the flight, you know. So you have to, like, leave the house at 2 o'clock in the morning, you know. So as you can imagine, all the little kids are, like, really feeling their best, and everything's fine, we're waiting on this long line. It was before Pesach, there were long lines, you know. And finally, she puts in all the information, Every kid, all the passports, everything like that, you know, and pushes the button, it doesn't print. So she does the whole thing again, doesn't print. Get somebody else, they come by, they try to do it, they can't do it. She goes to get the supervisor, the supervisor won't come. She has to walk, and she walks as fast as she types, all the way across, and she comes back, and the woman says, you'll have to write them out by hand. Nine boarding passes and 16 luggage slips. And she writes as fast as she walks and types. And in the meantime, you were looking at the watch. And we've already passed boarding, you know. And my wife says, what's going to be? I said, there's nothing I can do. So what if we missed the flight? I said, that we missed the flight, but there's nothing. I can't. I offered to help her write it out. She would let me, you know. No, I have to write it myself, you know. And we're just sitting there. And then you start hearing the announcements. I said, they're calling us. I said, there's nothing I can do. I can't go without my, my, my boarding passes, you know. So finally they said, you know, a couple of security people, they're looking around, hey, four loves me. I said, we're right over here, you know, we're waiting for the, for the woman. We were here with plenty of time, you know. So this is, come with us, come with us, you know. So we had to wait till we got all the boarding passes, and we're all dashing down, you know, and uh, rushing in, and we finally make it to the plane. I cannot tell you how happy these people who have been sitting on the runway at 5 o'clock in the morning for a half an hour waiting for this, you know, religious family of nine to show up, you know. And we come onto the plane and we don't have seats together. 
And two of my kids go, I'm not sitting there. <laughs> and I took my wife and the youngest child and I said, sit down. I said, but what's going to be? I said, I don't know. Maybe they'll arrest them. Maybe they'll throw them out. I don't know. There's, there's nothing I can do. Whatever power I have in this world, it does not extend to teenagers. That much I know for sure. I have no power when it comes to that. There's nothing I can do. Either they'll sit down or they won't sit down. Maybe they'll stand for the flight. I have no idea. But I can't, I cannot at this point begin negotiating with them. So that's it. Eventually they sat down. Eventually we got there, you know. And, uh, and you start to see situations and you say, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do. This is completely outside of my control, you know. <coughs> I had uh, had pneumonia. I was here in uh, in America. I must have gotten sick. I had pneumonia. I assume I had pneumonia. You know, I was coughing a lot, and I was speaking that whole week. You know, cold, rainy week in Yerushalayim, and you know, and I spoke Thursday night and Friday night. I, I was already feeling pretty sick, and uh, it was my grandson's Shalom Zacher. And I started shaking. And this happened to me a few times. I was like shaking uncontrollably. And I finally just excused myself, went to my room. And I went into a coughing fit. And I couldn't stop. I couldn't breathe. It was absolutely terrible. For 45 minutes and nobody could hear me because there was a party going on outside. And the shalom's up, you know. And eventually somehow I got out of bed. I I called my wife and I said, you better call a chavesh. And they checked my oxygen. My oxygen was low, you know. They gave me oxygen. I felt a little better. And... uh, and they carry me out on a stretcher Friday night, bring me out you know, very traumatic for everybody they bring me to the hospital, they do an x-ray and I have pneumonia so they give me antibiotics, I fell asleep I woke up in the morning, I'm in the cardiac wing I said, what happened? nobody will tell me anything these are, a lot of these doctors are from the uh, former Soviet Union where by law you don't tell the patient anything. The doctors discuss by themselves what they're going to do, and the patient really is, you know, asked to stay out of the process. And uh, I'm an American, where you know the doctor has to tell you everything and record it. Wow, we <laughs> notice after my whole speech with the diabetes, no one's bringing me a piece of cake. But anyway, <laughs> that's one of the downsides to that story. But anyway. <laughs> I was once at somebody's house, you know, there are a lot of people listening to my shiurim, you know, so this, the kid, the kid must have been like 12, you know, and I went for a piece of cake, and he, he literally pulls it out of my hand. I was like, what? And he says to me, remember, it was in England, he goes, it's not worth dying for. <laughs> I said, who lets you watch the computer? <laughs> I talk to your parents anyway. So, um, so the uh, uh, there goes the there goes with the uh, the ADD. What was I talking about? <laughs> the what? Yeah. So so the so eventually, you know, they come in and they say, listen, you know, we have to meet. We have to meet. This is what it is. So my family's gathered around. They come in. You know, this this was. This was Friday night, so uh, the Shabbos, nobody works, you know, so Sunday, they say to me, um, you had a, um, we think that you have uh, a heart attack, and pneumonia, and blocked arteries, and um, uh, pericarditis. So my son looks at them and says, there's a rule by the Shagas Arie. Uh, three things don't, don't go wrong at the same time. You're going to have to pick two. <laughs> it can't be everything. You just don't know what it is, right? So you're just going to say everything just to cover yourself. You know what I mean? So uh, they said, we're going to do some tests. So Monday, they did a test, and they arranged Tuesday, I'm going to have a centaur, a uh, angiogram. And, uh, and I said at one point, I said, this is ridiculous, I'm leaving. They said, you can't leave. You could drop dead at any minute. You know what I mean? You have to stay here, you know? So... I'm getting my angiogram during my grandson's bris. I'm missing the bris. And I was so upset, you know. And I know there's nothing wrong with me. Because I, I saw when my father and my brothers had their heart attacks. And their I know what that looks like. I, you know, I was fine, you know. Anyway, they're doing the angiogram and they're whispering to each other. And I'm like, yeah, I know this. You know, they're trying to figure out how to put the best face on it, you know. And make it say, well, we thought, we this, we that, you know. Anyway, they pull it out and they says, I don't know, you're still alive. You're not getting enough blood to keep you alive. He says, you should be dead. 
you know. So he says uh, you need an emergency triple bypass, you know, meet with the surgeon, you know, and, uh, and and it's interesting that you know at that point you start to realize I don't have a lot of choices, not a lot of choices, you know, a lot of things are not under your control. This Shvat will be the twentieth yard site of my father. And I remember my father was sick. He'd been sick for a long time. And uh, I had a flight to come in on Sunday night. And uh, the doctor calls up and says, come in now. It was Thursday. I said, I'm coming in, I'm coming in uh, Sunday night. He said, no, no, come in now. So I immediately booked the flight Thursday night. I started packing. And I looked at my wife and I said, this comes at a really bad time. And she says, when's a good time? I said, 20 years from now, it would be a much better time. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm too young to be an orphan, you know what I mean? And, uh, and, and it's, it's the kind of thing where you start to realize how many things are really under my control. <clears throat> so I'm not even talking about that. There, there, there's a certain, there's certain sense of there's nothing I can do. Nothing I can do, you know? Um, you get stuck in traffic, you know? So if you have Waze, Waze is great. You'll still get stuck in traffic, but they'll drive you through side streets. You know what I mean? Take you here and take you there, and you go over here. And and you know what the amazing thing is? If you don't listen to them, they create traffic to get you. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) They root a bunch of other cars to, like, punish you. You know what I mean? So whatever they tell you to do, do it. That's my advice. No matter where they tell you to go. You know, I once had to go. It was terrible traffic everywhere, and I had to go speak in New Jersey. I didn't know I was going to get there. And they start sending me down roads I've never heard of, things I've never seen, you know. I got there in record time. It was just absolutely amazing. Someone said to me, you know, when you have ways, you're able to put in those little uh, notifications. So I said, what happens? Because well, when you keep putting them in, you get points. So I realized what happens is if you get enough points, then they reroute everybody else so that you have less traffic on your road. You know? That's the reward you get, you know. So, because uh, you have no idea, you'll do anything. Waze will tell you to do it, you know what I mean? You know, stop the car by the side of the road for 20 minutes, you know. Oh, you know Waze said so. I don't, don't want to mess with these people, you know. <laughs> you know? But uh, you're stuck in traffic. Yeah, there's nothing you can do about it. But, but, but there are situations in life where you have to say, am I in control? I'm in control. I know I can't control events. Can I control my choices? I'm in Jewish education many years. There is nothing more frightening for any of us who work with young people when a teenager looks at you with that look of confidence and says, don't worry, Rabbi, I know what I'm doing. And I say, I also know what you're doing. That's the problem. You're so sure. You're sure. I'm so sure. People make decisions. They don't realize the implications it's going to have for the rest of their lives. <coughs> I read in Scientific American that there is actually um, a chemical in the brain that makes you take risks that are higher in teenagers. Teenagers, because they, you know, Otherwise, they would never get married. You know what I mean? Like, you know, if they didn't, they didn't have, they weren't drugged up in their head. You know, something says, "Yeah, I can handle this." <laughs> That's where the older you get, the harder it is for you to get married because you're like, "What am I crazy? This is this is so hard." When you're young, you're sure you know everything. You know, you know this uh, this uh, this kid gets married, 19 year old gets engaged to this 22 year old. You know. Chaim says that we should listen. Chaim thinks, you know. And the father's like, Chaim, you know what I mean? Like, you know, God, you know, don't wipe his nose yet, Chaim. And all of a sudden, he's the genius because you're marrying him, you know. Like, don't you ever say that about my Chaim? Like, okay, okay. You know, at the time, you know, we have, a, we, have a, we take risks, you know. So, Teenagers don't always see the consequences of their actions, where it's going to go. And that's why sometimes a kid is doing something, and I'll tell them. Explain to them why this is not a good thing, and I get no reaction. I said, you know what? You get married, you have a teenage girl, and she wants to do this. What would you do? And invariably they tell me, I'd kill her. I said, what's the difference? It's different. Why is it different? It's just different. (laughs) I can't explain to you why. It just is. Yeah? Because when we look at it from our point of view, or somebody else's, that sense of self-control? Self-control? Who's the boss? Turkey Avos. 
Yeah? The sixth parak of Pirkei Avos. That's why we don't call it Mesechet Avos. Because Mesechet Avot has only five prakim. The sixth parak of Pirkei Avos is a collection of braces that were gathered together. Yeah? Now to have a sixth parak. And there is the famous brisa that everyone knows. Al-Tikra Choros HaHaluchos Elecheros HaHaluchos Don't read engraved on the, on the tablets, read freedom on the tablets. What does that mean? That means that people say, ah, I'm going to take on a Torah lifestyle, it's so restricting. It's so restricting. I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. You know? I mean, there's a lot of stuff you can do, you know? This priest once said to Bionis and Eibschitz, says, you Jews, you're such a restrictive life. Can't eat pig, can't eat shrimp, can't eat milk and meat, can't go to places on Saturday. So Yerushalayim says, you know, that's a good point. I'm going to go home and discuss it with my wife. <laughs> says to the priest, priest don't get married again. So, uh, you know, so, uh, so it's not as bad as some places, but there are people who can do anything they want. Anything they want, they do. Doesn't make them happier necessarily, right? Because there's a part of us that's animalistic. And therefore, the Torah tells us you see something you want, don't steal it. Someone gets you angry, don't kill them. Don't eat everything, don't, don't go everywhere. You're right. The more I control the animal, the happier ultimately I'm going to be. But if I just let myself do whatever I want, you know, so a person drinks himself drunk every night, and a person eats until they're sick, you know, and uh, I used to know a person every Saturday night who would complain about how sick he was, and he must have something wrong with his digestion, you know, and I saw how he ate over Shabbat, and I knew exactly why he was that way. It really wasn't a hard thing to figure out, you know. He couldn't see it. He just knows afterwards, oh, I'm sick, I'm sick. Of course you're sick. Can't eat that much food and not suffer, you know. But uh, but you know you, you see you see certain things. Yeah, chorus aluchos. Don't read chorus elacherus. It's freedom, because the more that I can control myself, the more that I'm the boss over myself, then that's the happy I'm going to be. That's the better person I'm going to be. And that's where I'm going to go. And that brings us to the topic for this evening. <laughs> All of that was by way of introduction. Because <laughs> when I said to <clears throat> Yaniv, when he picked the topic, who's the boss? <clears throat> I said, what do you want me to talk about? He says, talk about technology. I said, what? He says, you know how people aren't boss, uh, they're not their own boss, that the technology is taking them over. So, I can't say it for anybody else. I never liked those kind of shir. I never liked those kind of shir because, you know, it would be nice uh, to a certain extent if we could turn back the clock. <clears throat> I remember there was somebody who wrote years ago, you know, I don't, I don't know how many people, I don't think anybody here is old enough to remember the era of radio. <clears throat> there was only the radio. There was no TV. The good old days, remember? And the family would sit around and watch the radio. <laughs> and now, from the exciting times of yesteryear, the Lone Ranger, and you know, and you, you'd listen to these adventures and excitements, and it just, he says, he says, if they had first invented the television and then invented the radio, they would have said, thank goodness somebody finally figured out a way to get rid of the picture. Yeah, if you like to read, then you know how much fun it is when you read and you let your imagination fill in the blanks, right? When you watch something, your participation has decreased dramatically, right? If you want an example of this, find here and there there were a few people, a few kids who had read this uh, book series called Harry Potter. Yeah. And uh, let's put it this way. She wrote the first book on napkins in a luncheonette. 
because she lived in this unheated flat where she would just go and sit in the luncheonette because it had heat. And she wrote the first Harry Potter book. The last one she wrote in her castle. So um, evidently she sold quite a few books, yeah? But you know, when the movies came out, the people who were into the books were so upset. They were like upset, you know? You know, I, I, they changed this, they changed that. That's not how it happened. They left out this character. They did this, they did that, you know? You know, when, the, when they made movies out of The Lord of the Rings, you know, three movies. So, uh, and then out of The Hobbit, they made three movies out of that. I, I, they had it kind of backwards. That was one book, this was three. But um, when they made three movies out of it, you know, and people watched it, people who were real token fans, you know, they were like, ah, oh, they left out this, left out that. So someone was complaining to me, and I said, don't you understand, he wrote 10,000 years of backstory before he started the story. How much do you think you're going to fit into a film? You know what I mean? When you read, you have a lot more room, you develop more characters, more ideas. Yeah? When you watch something, you are completely limited. It is completely passive. In the old days, when you could go to a TV, watch a TV show or a movie, and you didn't have to worry about anything inappropriate. No double entendres, no inappropriate lines, you know, very straightforward. I love Lucy. Yeah? I love Lucy. Where um, they, were, they were never allowed, there was never one bed in, in the room, twin beds in the TV show. The first TV show where there was one bed in the room was the Brady Bunch. I've got so much worthless information, it's just unbelievable. <laughs> I once had a Rebbe who said, well, Yolovsky, if only you could use your mind for good instead of evil, imagine what you could have accomplished, you know? But I say it's different. It's like it says in Perkyevos, there's different types of students. One is called the Mishmeris, that all the wine drips out and they're just left with the dregs, you know what I mean? Like, you know? So I remember all this nonsense, it's not a problem. But, uh, you know, <clears throat> well, it was somewhat wholesome. And the jokes were straightforward, and they were funny, and it wasn't going to be anything inappropriate. Even then, there were, there were people who opposed it. I mean, Godoli Torah, who opposed watching TV. Because it's so passive. You sit there, and it just hits you. It just, you just take it in. You just absorb it. Yeah? Um, there is yeshiva, I don't know if he wants to publish this or not, but yeshiva in itself where they'll work with a guy with any problem they have. If a guy is, you know, involved with girls, if a guy is involved with, you know, he drinks, if a guy is, well, doesn't get up in the morning, whatever it is, they'll work with every problem. There's only one rule they have. You're not allowed to have anything that gets the internet. Nothing. He says, for that, we throw you out. Everything else we'll put up with. I said to him, why is that your one rule? And he said, because in our generation, People don't have a taiva to go and do bad things. People have a taiva to just sit at the computer all day and watch. You know, you watch people walk across the street. I don't know about anybody else here. Have you almost hit somebody? Because they're walking across the street like this, watching their phone. Now that might not have happened to you because you were busy texting while you were driving. But, But assuming that, you know, you're really paying attention, you know, I go out to eat with my wife and I see at every table two people are talking to other people on their phones. What a beautiful moment that is. Everybody's calling somebody else, you know. Um, the meantime we were waiting for the waitress but she was calling, you know, somebody else on her phone. I got her number, I called her, hi, table six. So can you get on there? We'll give you an order and be okay, you know. You know, <clears throat> you know how we, we, we so... Are, are enslaved to this? It was before Yantif. I was waiting in line in a butcher in Yerushalayim. And the phone keeps ringing. The phone keeps ringing. And there's a million people in the store. And every time the phone rings, he takes an order. And all, there are people sitting there waiting in line. So I finally went outside and I called in my order from the payphone outside of the butcher. And they immediately picked up. I gave my order. I said, I'll be ready. I said, no problem. I got back online. When I got there, it was all set, you know? Because somehow, a phone call is more important than a person. Now, I'm going back to the old days. Yeah? The old days is, <clears throat> the only phone belonged to the, the phone company. 
and it was wired into the wall. And that was it. And there was no, there was no uh, answering machines, and there was no uh, caller ID. There was no way to know who anybody was, you know. And I'd be talking to somebody, and the phone would start ringing. And people would go, it's the phone. Like somehow that has some mystical characteristic. It's the phone. Ah! So you have to stop everything and answer the phone, you know. So I remember, if, if, if you remember from that time, you know, the phone would ring, everybody starts screaming, get the phone, get the phone, because you missed the phone call, you know. And you start running, trying to find the phone, you know, you pick it up, it's gone. So now you call everybody you know. Hi, did you call me? Oh, okay. Oh, hi, did, did you call me? You know, no way to know who called you, you know. It was, it was totally gone, you know. Unless the FBI, you know, like, put a tap on your line. There's no way to know, you know. And keep track of where everyone came in. And I'm talking to somebody, and they go, it's the phone. And I said, yeah. So aren't you going to answer it? I said, I'm sitting here talking to an actual human being, you know, and I should stop that in order to answer a phone call? I can't speak for anybody here, right? But I have been in Minyanim, where during Shmona Esrei, you hear the cell phones go off. Okay, it's disturbing. That's not so disturbing. What's disturbing is when the guy pulls out the phone. See who it is. I'm sorry, God. It might be an important call. I'm sitting here talking to God and it might be somebody here more important. That's not the worst part. The worst part is when it is more important. And the middle of an estuary, the guy goes, uh-huh, 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 I was with somebody who was like, the phone's ringing, you know, aren't you going to get it? I said, who do you think, it's the president? The president's calling me up for advice. Maybe it's the prime minister, you know. Uh, maybe it's a major surgeon coming to ask me advice, a life or death issue. I said, trust me, whoever's calling me can wait, you know. Uh, how many phone calls have I ever gotten in my life that were like dire phone calls? But people just can't stop. And people are on their phones constantly texting and talking and, you know, and that's it, you just see tops of heads, you know. And, uh, and people on the... Uh, I just wrote a piece on this. You can check it out on my Facebook page. Um, I'll ask but uh, but I've, been, I've been getting such terrible pressure to post you know, stuff on Facebook. So I finally opened up the Facebook page. Anyway, so, uh, so now I'm part of the problem instead of part of the solution. <laughs> Read about the evils of the Internet on my Facebook page. You can go take a look at it. <laughs> but... Um, you know, we, we become obsessed. So they did a study worldwide, not Jewish students, a thousand students across the world. And they took them off from all of their um, technology and they experienced the same withdrawal symptoms as a person going off heroin and cocaine. That's the level of addiction. That's why they have this term, which I read about a few years back, called half Shabbos. Half Shabbos, so people keep Shabbos, but they text. They can't stop. They can't stop. They're addicted. They're addicted, you know? <coughs> These are people who get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and check their email, just to make sure, you know what I mean? They're see if there's anything going on, you know? People, people are so, we're so addicted to this stuff, you just can't even believe it. You know, and that's the sad part. This girl says uh, to her friend, you know, goes, I haven't seen you anywhere, you know, in any of the chat rooms. She says, I got rid of my Facebook, I got rid of my Twitter account, I got rid of my email, I got rid of, I cut off everything. She says, well, then what do you do? She says, what do I do? What do you mean? Now I finally have a life. She says, can I use it in Candy Crush? Because <laughs> what else do you need a life for, you understand? Only to use it in Candy Crush, you know. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, we just get stuck on stuff. So what's the practical, this is where my wife always says to me, so what's the practical application? I can't tell you that. I can't tell you that. I, I can tell you that, you know, a person can take a look and see who's the boss. Am I, am I in control of myself and my technologies? Does my technology serve me? Or do I serve it? Yeah? When that phone rings, do I have to answer it? And I say, even you can see in, in Tefillah, you see people answer it. You see people who just can't, you know, turn off the, 
computer. They can't get away from it. It's with them all the time. <clears throat> now you can get a computer on your watch. You can get a computer everywhere. You never have to be disconnected. You know, um, I know that it makes us better people. Um, studies have been done. I read in Psychology Today different studies that were done on how um, uh, technology technology is destroying marriages. It was a cover story in Psychology Today a few months ago. Yeah, that, that the technology gets in between the relationship, gets in between the marriage. People are in their, you know, their stuff, you know. And you see four friends sitting around, everyone's on their phone. Nobody's talking to anybody. There's, there's uh, you know, because now we have more and more ways of communicating. We just do it less, you know. But we're, we're, we're sending out all kinds of stuff. You know, I don't have personal Facebook, you know, but uh, every now and then I used to get these requests in my email. Somebody wants you to be their friend. So I'd be like, oh, great, so have them give me a call and we'll have a cup of coffee. You know what I mean? No, 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 they want to add you to their list of friends on Facebook so you can look at their personal pictures. I said, I have enough friends like that already. You know what I mean? I said, you want to be my friend? <laughs> A friend who says to me, "Yeah, quick, take a look at my picture. Here, here I was, you know, like uh, you know, has a, a selfie, you know. I was like, oh, that's that's great, you know. But uh, but that, that that's a friend, that's a friend, you know. Because says, oh, I have 400 friends, you know. I say, you're doing a lot better than me, you know. If a person has two or three friends, they have to really count themselves very lucky in this world, you know. And and the more." that we do not have control of ourselves and the world around us, then the less we're able to become real people. Instead, we, we become, we don't have that gvura. Yeah? That's why he says in Pekiyavos, Shmonim le gvura. Says, uh, says the Mepharshim, at 80 you're, you have gvura. Why? Because you don't have the same desires that you had as a younger person. You know? I can tell you this, that the older you get, the list of things you can enjoy in this world physically becomes smaller and smaller. You know, the list of foods that you can no longer digest gets longer and longer. You know, and uh, yes, it forces you to face more about spirituality and relationships. You know, and so this is, as he said, the big type of our generation. The type of our generation is not to go out and you know do kinds of bad things. Just sit at the computer and watch. Movies, watch TV shows, watch and watch and watch, and people are following them. And it's not like we're used to, that's it, this show comes on at 8 o'clock on Tuesday. If you missed it, you missed it, you know. Now you can watch it on the computer anytime you want. There's a million sites, you can see it all the time. You can just sit there and watch stuff all day. Never have to do anything. Just came in on a flight from Israel, and people sit there the whole flight just watch movie after, that's how they pass the time. Movie after movie after movie. So, um, so that's the idea. <clears throat> Am I advocating a technology-free world? It, it, it's, that's, that's definitely not what I'm saying. Yeah, I definitely don't want to. You know, no question about it. Now, you know, if you if you use ways to find out where you're going, I'm old enough that I could still write down on pencil and paper. You know, what I mean, where I'm going and follow those instructions. But I certainly won't know where the traffic is unless you listen to the traffic reports. And even then, that's not always up to date. You know, <clears throat> so yeah, technology can help you in a lot of different ways. And the question is, is it there to serve us, or has it started to take us over? You know who's strong? Somebody who's in control of themselves. And the more that we take control of our lives, and ultimately the happier we're going to be. Thank you very much.